0: Hello and welcome to Unframed, conversations about the arts on CFCR 90.5 FM in Saskatoon and streaming live around the world at cfcr.ca. I'm your host, Michael Peterson. With me tonight is David LeRiviere, Artistic Director at PAVED, who is also a practicing artist. And David's here to talk about his own project tonight, Evil from the Outset, a feature-length film that will be screening at the Rock a week from tonight, June 23rd at 9.30 PM. Is that correct? That's correct. Thank you, David, for joining me. Thank you for having me, Michael. So, first of all, Evil from the Outset, if you don't mind just sort of setting the stage and telling us a little bit about the film itself.
1: Well, it it really is, uh, from the outset, uh, kind of a community project in a way. The Evil from the Outset involves 16 artists, non-actors really, uh, maybe a couple of them have acting chops. Ashton Francis, I think, has uh, acting experience, for example. But mostly they're, they're friends, people that we all know in the arts community in Saskatoon. And they all generously gave their time to play parts in this uh, kind of preposterous, absurd you know, documentary in scare quotes, if your listeners could see me making the rabbit ears with my fingers right now, about a serial killer. Who stocks uh, CEOs of multinational conglomerate corporations.
0: I know when we've talked about this the film is really Taking its visual cues and its format from serial killer documentaries Which is I, I think possibly a genre that people might not even necessarily be aware of
1: Yes, uh, and that is very good point and in fact there is a particular serial killer documentary based on the the unfortunate sad story of Edmund Kemper, and the name of the show is called uh, Born to Kill." Question mark? So naturally, my mockumentary is entitled "Evil from the Outset." Question mark.
0: So tell us about this Edmund Kemper and why that story sort of became an inspiration for you.
1: If you tap in the word serial killer documentary into a search in YouTube, you get about 500 returns. So there's a lot out there, and they are actually very popular. I imagine some of your listenership will know exactly what I'm talking about. Sure. But uh, this particular one, I selected partly because of the story arc. It it's it had a kind of uh, inbuilt, Oedipal aspect to it, um, and it it suggested, uh, you know that you know, this whole question of nature versus nurture and this kind of moralizing question, was he evil from the outset or born to kill in the in the terms of that documentary? Or was he a product of his environment? So it just kind of fit with what I wanted to do, which was kind of a Frankenstein story for the
0: 1%. When you mention the 1%, one of the main aspects you've changed is who the victims are. So... In the Edmund Kemper in real life, these were young women, correct?
1: Yes, uh, he was, and this is so crass, and it really should be frowned upon, and yet it's still a traded uh, term, but the media actually dubbed him uh, the co-ed butcher. Wow. Uh, which uh, is very distasteful, uh, but uh, my guy is uh, was also dubbed by the media the CEO butcher, so <laughs> there you go.
0: What was that choice of CEO? Why... Why replace young co-ed women as it was with CEOs in your story?
1: Well, uh, you know, this question of nature versus nurture, and in my case, kind of moving towards a Frankenstein model, it's this idea that basically seeing through the veils of uh, the absurdity of proposing that CEOs should be victims of a serial killer would never first of all, probably never happened, but second of all, would never be so trivialized as uh, perhaps uh, some of these, uh, this cottage industry of documentaries about serial killers tend to do to their subjects.
0: Well, and in particular, young women. Or d- young men, for sure. that
1: matter. But mostly uh, in this kind of leering way where we ride along and vicariously enjoy reliving these really tragic events.
0: Then is part of that choice of CEOs asking us to question why it's socially acceptable to leer, as you mentioned, at certain people or at certain demographics of people in these tragic situations? Um,
1: I guess it, it might be ca- actually coming from a, even a slightly different trajectory. And here's where I, I never seem to be very far uh, from Jonathan Swift's modest proposal. It, it really just seemed to me to be such an absurd uh, proposition. And like Jonathan Swift's modest proposals, you know, suggesting that we eat babies in order to feed the poor or whatever, that um, in this case, that maybe this monster of our own making, um, you know, this serial killer who was locked into the basement of a neoconservative think tank and spanked by the invisible hand of the market and basically... Uh, was traumatized by exposure to opulence and exposure to, um, you know, this uh, uh, extreme wealth. That that uh, that could be the format of the making of a monster.
0: So, asking how our current capitalist society can almost create a monster on its own, then.
1: Yeah, well, it's a, it's always of interest to me that. We designate, you know, sane from insane, and we, uh, society draws a line, and yet um, these sociopaths who are de- decimating the environment are um, lauded as philanthropists and captains of industry.
0: So socially acceptable sociopathic behavior?
1: Absolutely, a rewarded uh, sociopathic uh, behavior and, and lauded, um, held up on high as aspirational uh, subjects, and yet uh, also kind of uh, imprisoned in a a strange way. Um, Imprisoned on yachts, mind you, uh, or in the Cayman Islands, perhaps, Uh, but uh, nevertheless uh, not able to really circulate uh, among humanity or really have a a profound kind of relationship to the earth because they're uh, so detached in this abstraction of wealth.
0: That's interesting, but it seems to to be a separation that's self-caused often like that a choice to chase wealth and then to become sort of distance from Regular life at that point as opposed to someone who might be and I think this goes back to that idea of someone who's born with a psychopathic Behavioral trait or something. I don't know yeah.
1: very much so and I uh, with um, the victims of the film they are actually uh, real CEOs uh, so none of them are actually dead. None of them were actually victimized by a serial killer at any point. And in fact, I have a disclaimer at the end of the film that no uh, CEOs were harmed in the making of the film. So it is, it's is—it's obviously uh, just a conceit, but it's one where it's rife with all of these double entendres, um... make a killing and you know other other instances where the actual verbiage of this world does have a kind of psychopathic features
0: and then to go back to that sort of physicality of the film as well as, as you talk there's a lot of visual cues that you're giving to to market as part of this documentary the notion of panning shots over still images of talking heads as you mentioned so can you tell me a bit about that process and what the filming in that production part of it was like? So uh,
1: dealing with 16 non-actors and uh, quite um, a lengthy script. And the um, first question that came to mind was like, how to get non-actors to memorize these lines. So the idea dawned on me that uh, a teleprompter would be a good way to go because that's all I really need are talking heads. Right. They're all going to be in front of the green screen. All their environments are composited after the fact. And they're all invented, all of the environments are invented in uh, Photoshop using uh, Google image searches of office spaces and so on. Everywhere where I could slip in uh, oblique references to the world of serial killers, I did. Uh, So I have Dallas Kruzanicki's character, for example. He plays uh, Dr. Louis Singer. Uh, he's a uh, kind of a serial, serial killer guru, uh, psychologist who does a bunch of these documentaries, because those gurus exist as well, by sure. the way. And uh, so, so anyway, in, in the background of his office, he's sitting, of course, on a, a Shea lounge, because he's a Freudian psychoanalyst. And uh, he's got a, a bowl of cash on, on a countertop, and then an actual John Wayne Gacy uh, painting, of one of uh, John Wayne Gacy's clowns. So uh, some people will even recognize that uh, reference. Um, Mike Kelly, the artist, famously incorporated John Wayne Gacy painting into uh, one of his installations at, at one point. Mm-hmm. But in my film, I also animated the clown's hand, so he's constantly waving at you as uh, as you watch the scene. So it's kind of uh, quite
0: disturbing in that regard. As you talk about, there's a lot of moving parts to this film and, and this idea of... Existing certainly as a motion picture, but coming from your background in the gallery system that it can also exist as a gallery installation in future lives and that there there's still images There's this idea of moving images, but almost static moving images like the the waving clown like Animated portions that can sort of stand on their own maybe
1: absolutely Uh, There's some objects that I am creating that are ancillary to the film, but uh, they tie into the narrative. At the same time, they stand on their own as objects. And the, most, the one that's the, the, actually the most kind of ambition, ambitious of all of these objects is uh, in the film, just like the Oedipal Triangle in the original story, except the sexes are switched. It, uh, it's uh, the serial killer in the original story killed his mother because she uh, constantly berated him the serial killer in my story was abandoned by his birth father, whose name is Dick Arbitrage. Dick is obvious enough. Arbitrage is actually a financial term that pretty much, uh, you know, alludes to the situation that we live in today with high frequency trading, with these, with a the marketplace that um, works by computer algorithm. It's literally inhuman and arbitrage is a kind of a practice of buying and selling so quickly that you control the whole table of the market. Um, it's, it was made illegal back in the old analog days, and it's interesting that it's crept back in and become a kind of um, the uh, state of affairs that we live with now uh, due to the fact that it's not a human, it, what, what it was called back in the day was front running. Okay. Um, but uh, it, now it's this inhuman practice, so it's it's legal. Nobody's committing a crime. It's uh, it's an algorithm, oh. so uh, which is kind of fascinating in itself. Dick Arbitrage is the final victim that really Edmund Harbinger wanted to kill all along. All their names are kind of joke names. Harbinger and Arbitrage are kind of obvious, and uh, all the characters have various uh, kind of joke names as well. But what happens is that. Uh, Harbinger cuts uh, Dick Arbitrage, his birth father, cuts his head off and because you might have children listening I won't say what he does to the head but it's pretty obscene and uh, but fortunately uh, these people from Alcor, this uh, life extension uh, facility, get a hold of Dick Arbitrage's head and put it rapidly into cryonic freeze so that one day the nanobot technology will be developed so that hopefully Dick Arbitrage will be revived and his hedge fund managing can resume. But until that time, his head is inside a cryonic freeze chamber. These things actually exist, which is hilarious all by itself. But anyway, what I'm actually making is a false, a kind of a uh, a cryonic chamber where Dick Arbitrage's floating head is going to be in this window. And people will, with the gesture of their hand using a leap controller, be able to spin his head. And when it comes back to a resting state, it will emit a, a short burst of financial advice.
0: And when you're talking about this head, as listeners may not be aware, this is played by you.
1: Yes, I'm actually the final victim in the film. So how's that for... The ultimate passive-aggressive uh, statement and uh, but in every scene that I appear uh, I do have uh, the basically my face on top of Michael Douglas's head from playing Gordon Gecko from Wall Street
0: right what is it like though I'm just wondering to make a cryogenic version of your own decapitated head uh,
1: well I had the uh, great assistance of uh, uh, Jean-Sébastien Gautier who did a 3D scan of my head. And then afterwards um we did a dragon frame uh stop motion um series of photographs of my head that were uh grafted onto the three D model. And what that does is it just provides a, a lot of detail. And then from there um I had to work on Michael Douglas's hair. Uh because <laughs> my my own hair is not as uh quite as uh, good as his so being a Hollywood guy I guess he, he's just got a little more up there and, and my own hairline is a little more receding and and kind of wispy uh, so I had we, we had to build it up a little bit
0: that's great I guess before we move off the sort of uh, creation portion of this the one other question I'd have for you is just in terms of your choice to employ artists as actors as opposed to actors and why was that choice made and sort of what were the results
1: well, uh, it was really made out of uh just the base fact that these are my friends and they're the most available uh, you know like i uh, I guess it really boils down to uh, these are the people that i know i I don't know very many actors, fair uh, enough, but the other aspect of it was is that I didn't want people to act. I was really interested in people just being themselves as much as possible, and that was my constant instruction to people when when they were in front of the cameras just like. Say this as if this was you talking. And what came out of that was just uh, amazing. Like uh, John Morgan, who's a Paved Arts member for since going back to Video Verite days. He was involved in Video Verite for many, many years. He's had a long history with this community. He's just a, a sweet guy, very soft-spoken, very kind of demure. Um, he played uh, this psychiatrist who befriended uh, at, uh, uh, Harbinger in um, this uh, psychiatric hospital that I named St. Affluenza. Wink, wink. And um, anyway, you know, his personality, just just being his, his own soft-spoken self, was absolutely perfect. It was just brilliant. Same thing with Terry Billings. You know, I don't think Terry... Uh, would consider herself an an actor by any stretch but um, she didn't have to she just was really herself although I will say that she went the extra mile in terms of I gave each individual photographs of the person the real-life person that I was basing them on and most people I think kind of looked at the photographs and just uh, said well that's fine Uh, great and then they just showed up but a few people uh, Terry was one of them uh, went the extra mile and actually uh, dressed up like their characters uh, and for it to be in front of the camera, which was like fantastic as well.
0: That's great. Uh, and then as we said, this is going to air 9:30 next Thursday at the Roxy. so a proper screening premiere film premiere. This is called an MK Ultra Foods motion picture. And I just know going back to some of your earlier work I think of uh, liquid bacon, Yep. That that was one of my at least easy references during <laughs> yeah. uh, the Street Meat Festival, if I'm not mistaken, yep. a few years back. But can you tell us a bit more about sort of what has led into this and about the MK Ultra pr- uh, work that you do?
1: So, well, for for your listeners, I'm I'm sure many of them will be familiar with the term MK Ultra. It's a uh, kind of famous, although not. Uh, household exactly but it was a uh, mind control program uh, that was run by the CIA although it had very strong connections here in Canada and support from the Canadian government as well uh, with some of its most uh, radical experiments that involved LSD and uh, electroshock therapy 40 times the clinical average and a process called psychic driving that was carried out in Montreal at the, um, it was in Montreal anyway, at McGill University. And so long story short, like I, I basically sort of conceptualized M. Keltra Foods as this, uh, um, after M. Keltra revelations came forward in the early 70s, just kind of imagining that maybe rather than being deposed and uh, run out of town, as it were, that instead that, that maybe they go legit and become a food company that specializes in mind control foodstuffs but of course mind control has many tendrils so mk Ultra foods is developing a motion pictures division in order to control people's minds that way and and they all mk Ultra foods has a tourism uh, portfolio as well uh, where they uh, offer family fun tourism packages to the Athabasca tar sands of course that has is on hiatus at the moment
0: fair enough and this is uh, all, some of these past events and some of the home for them takes place on the MK Ultra Foods website. Is that right?
1: Yes. Yeah. And MK Ultra Foods website is also kind of a mission control for uh, conspiracy theory websites in a way. It's kind of a rhizome, a launching pad you can... Go to the MK Ultra Foods family tree and click on any of the links uh, that are like sort of fruit that are dangling from the family tree, and it'll bring you to various um, conspiracy theory websites uh, of different points.
0: What's the inspiration there for the conspiracy theories and that sort of play of all this mind control? Sort of like, yeah, where where is that building from? Well, there's a there's this
1: interesting kind of antagonism between conspiracy theory and mind control because. For one, the idea that the government was involved in in mind control was once a conspiracy theory. Uh, before it was, you know, made public uh, in that what were called the Frank Church uh, Congressional Committees, uh, the, the, these revelations were basically recorded. And you know, at that point, a lot of files were shredded as well. Nobody really knows the extent of MKUltra. Um, so there is an antagonism. Between, I would say, conspiracy theory and conspiracy, uh, and there's also crossover. Uh, some of it is uh, so enthusiastic uh, that it actually kind of discredits itself. It wants to be both sides of the argument to win both ways or something. You know that we've seen this with uh, some of the 9/11 conspiracy. I would say, and what gets lost. In the midst of that are some salient points, of course. Right. And the, the most preposterous thing would be to say that something is discredited simply by being called conspiracy theory. And yet that happens too. In fact, nobody loves to do that more, uh, to basically say that's conspiracy theory as this kind of degraded term than figures on the right, like George W. Bush back in the day.
0: It's an easy way to almost call someone crazy, or like you say, to discredit a point.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And yet, to say that would be tantamount to saying that there's no such thing as a conspiracy, which is absolutely preposterous. We know for sure that conspiracies exist.
0: Well, then I guess I would end here. We've got this film, and we're just going to be screening it in a week, so I don't want to ask too much, like, what comes next. But at the same time, I know even in the lead-up you've been posting about the possibility of a sequel or... And certainly, this is part of an existing practice. So, I, I guess I would sort of say, sort of, where do you see this going from here?
1: Well, it's a, in a lot of respects. the The film has some themes in it that run through almost all of my work, and the absurd aspect that I was talking about before is how uh, the the way that absurdity can actually be a valuable tool is to implicate. What we consume quite readily uh, without even thinking. Uh, so to implicate these codes of these moralizing codes that make it okay for us to vicariously relive and, and enjoy as a kind of infotainment these uh, serial killer documentaries, for example. Um, but there are a number of themes in it uh, that um, you know have to do with the authority of the documentary the way that, you know, the talking head is conferred with a certain authority, that uh, the photograph lends uh, authenticity, or that all of these things, of course, in if we're to be vigilant, need to be questioned in in a proper critique. But when they're packaged, we, we can be seduced into a sort of a, a passive uh, pattern of consumption. And that's really the, the cage that I want to rattle with this work. And, and with my work in general. To get back to your question though, I, I I do think that what's next is is going to be more of that uh, rattling. I mean, I, I have developed a a full screenplay for the MK Ultra Foods story, uh, which uh, I've thought of as the mothership of my work in a way. So evil from the outset is like uh, part of the base of MK Ultra Foods in, in terms of like, uh, you know, uh, making a case for this uh, entity to exist in the world <laughs> but ultimately uh, I think um, what's on my horizon is I would like to tell uh, the story of MK Ultra Foods and Liquid Bacon in itself which is a very ambitious project um, that will involve a lot of the same kind of craft uh, where um, and we haven't even talked about this but there's not a single location in evil from the outset. Everything is composited everything is aggressively composited so at the end of the day this film and the next one maybe even more so the next project being this mculture food story they are about you know this kind of daffy duck cartoon where it turn- he is frustrated because the scenery is not there and he's complaining to the animator and at the end of uh at the end of the story bugs bunny turns to the camera he's at the drafting table he's been drawing the Daffy Duck cartoon the whole time, and he says, ain't I a stinker? And it's, it's that kind of like breaking of the fourth wall of causing a problem for the way that the generally accepted codes, and in, in this case in uh, Daffy Duck cartoon, uh, the animation might be received. I find that particular cartoon quite inspirational.
0: Well, that's great, David, and, and let's end that there. And a reminder to listeners that the film will be screening at the Roxy in a week. And David, are tickets for sale?
1: Uh, tickets are for sale. It's a, it's a regular screening night. The one difference being, though, uh, folks, if you are curious to see this serial killer documentary, you'll only have the one shot because uh, it's one screening only.
0: That's next Thursday, a week from tonight at 9.30 at the Roxy Theatre. Thank you again for joining me, David.
1: Uh, thanks a lot for having me, Michael, and I, I hope for all of you folks out there that you'll be able to join us. It's going to be a, a lot of fun. The whole cast is going to be in the audience. Uh, we're, we're going to have a blast.
0: Again, you've been listening to Unframed, conversations about the arts on CFCR 90.5 FM. I'm your host, Michael Peterson. As always, if you'd like to hear this episode again or any of our past episodes, you can go to our podcast at unframedradio.com or on iTunes, and you can always follow us on social media or Unframed Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks and have a good evening.